Hadassah, and I'm so excited to welcome you to Real Woman, Real Torah, a project of Bacheva Learning Center. We're here to offer you an authentic Torah learning experience, produced for women, by women. I hope you enjoy. If you'd like to follow along inside the text, you can find a fully vowelized PDF of the DAF at www.batshevalearningcenter.com slash DAF. Welcome back, everyone, to DAF Lamed Aleph of Masech HaSaita. Um, we're going to be finishing up Perek Hamishi today, and then we'll be doing the entire Perek Shishi uh, pretty much in one DAF um, today as well. So looking forward to that. Yeah, it's an exciting day. So we're on the, right on the top of Lamed Aleph. Lamed Aleph, three lines from the top of the page. Second word from the end of line, Bye Bayaim. So we're up to the final teaching um, that was in the Mishnah at the beginning of our parak. Uh, the final teaching that uh, is listed as being said on the day Rabbi Lezer ben Azariah was appointed to be Nasi. By Bayaim on that day, Darius Rabbi Shuba and Harkness, Rabbi Shuba and Harkness expounded. So, Rabbi Shuba and Harkness taught um, about Eiv, and he quoted a pasuk um, about Eiv, which seemed ambiguous as to the nature of Eiv's service of Hashem. So, um, the the pasuk had said, "Lai Ayachel." Um, that which can be read in two ways. It could be read as Lamed Aleph, no, I will not wait for him, I will not wait for Hashem, or Lamed Vav, to him, that I will wait. For him, I will wait, which means that Yev will wait for Hashem, right? Um, and so, um, Rabbi Shub and Herkinus was was unsure whether, um, what the implication of that Pesach means. Was it Layayaha, I will not wait, which meant that Eo did not, you know, serve Hashem until the end. He was only serving Hashem out of fear. Or was he serving Hashem out of love? Um, and then the correct, and, and do you read the Pesach as Layayaha, that no matter what Eo went through in his sufferings in life, he was still going to stick with Hashem. Um, so the Gemara asks a question on this. He's like, okay, I don't get what, what's the issue here? Okay, we're trying to figure out if it, it's supposed to be Lamed Vav or Lamed Aleph. The last day, hi, lay, e Lamed Aleph, siv, laihu, e Lamed Vav, siv, laihu. Like, just open a Tanakh, like, open, you know, open a safer Eev and see. If the lay is written with the Lamed Aleph, then it's lay, which means meaning no. I won't wait for him. Or if it's Lamed Vav, it means to him that, you know, I will wait for him, right? Like, just, you know, it seems like a pretty easy issue to figure out. Um, so, yeah, the first I'm actually point out, like, if you look in the in the Chumash, in the Tanakh, there actually is are two readings of it, right? The Cree is actually Lamed Aleph. Sorry, the Siv is Lamed Aleph. And the Kree, the tradition of how to read the words is actually Lamed Vav. So the Gemara really could be asking is like, when we have a Kree and a Siv, what do we follow? And so really the issue is, which reading do we follow? What does it mean? Like, what are we trying to, you know, why does Rabbi Yeshua seem unsure about what spelling is even written in uh, the Tanakh? So, um, so the Gemara asks, hey, 
that so that premise that Lamed Aleph always means no and Lamed Vav always means to him is going to be questioned. So the Gemara asks, Is it true that every time La is written with a Lamed Aleph, it means no? If that's true, Right. What about the pasuk b'chol tzarasam leitzar? So the full pasuk is from Tehillim. It says b'chol tzarasam leitzar u'malach panav hashem. It says that in all of their suffering, it's talking about Hashem. So in all the suffering of the Jewish people, leitzar. Um, we'll leave it untranslated for now. U'malach panav hashem, and he uses a like a he sends an angel in front of them to save them. Right. Um, now the word is written lamed aleph lights are. So it could, if you're going to translate that literally, lie means no. That means um, that in our in our suffering, Hashem is not with us. Right. So lamed aleph. Right, um, and that doesn't make sense. And the word says "hakinami." Even if you said, "Okay, yes, indeed, that's so," it means Hashem's not with us in our suffering. That doesn't make sense um, in context. If you say, you know, if you say yes, indeed, that is so, you know, lie means no. doesn't it say right afterwards that Hashem sends an angel in front of us to save us? So from context, it sounds like Hashem is empathizing or sympathizing with the Jewish people and Hashem is, you know, caring for their needs. So in context, translating Lamed Aleph as Hashem is not with us doesn't make sense. Um, so therefore, even though in this case it's written with a Lamed Aleph, the word, the Pesach is interpreted as though it had a Lamed Vav, that Hashem, which would be translated, in all of the Jewish people suffering, to Hashem, He uh, is pained. So actually, there's some. Well, this, this is a famous concept, right? Behold, throughout some light that Hashem, Hashem's with us in our pain, right? The Shechina, um, the Shechina goes with us into Galus and and suffers with us. Um, so I thought of a few of the commentaries discuss here how the Kri and the Ksiv, right? The fact that it's written as light with an olive, right? That lights are there's not pain, right? Um, and the the Kri, right? The way it's read is light with a vav. That to him, to Hashem, there is there is suffering. Um, those, both of those are significant. And both of those have meaning. So Ben Yehayada actually says that the the the, the Ksiv, right? The light with an olive, right? That there's not pain. Um, what is that saying? It's saying that in all of your suffering, right? Um, lights are right. Even, even if we, um, when we're in gullus, we shouldn't be afraid because even if we deserve, um, to be punished for our sins, lights are Hashem is going to like spare us from that suffering, um, out of his mercy, um, and take us out of gullus, even though we might deserve to be there longer because of our because of our, our sins. Um, and then the Cree, right, when it says lie with a vav, right, to him there is suffering, um, it's sort of saying the same idea, but just in a different way, right? It's saying that Hashem, it's kind of saying also Hashem will take us out of Gaulus early, even if we don't really deserve it. Why? Because lights are, because him, meaning the Shechina, is with us in Gaulus. And therefore, out of, out of you know, respect for the Shechina, even if we are undeserving, Hashem will take us out of Gaulus anyway. So both of these both lie with an alpha and lie with a ksiv, both have meaning. Um, and then I saw another idea for the, you know, about these the Kree and the Ksiv. Um, really beautiful idea that in general, anytime a person goes through suffering, um, you know, there's no such no evil can ever come from Hashem. So the suffering is always there with a purpose. Right? It's there to purify the person, to help them do tshuva, to help rectify and and bring them to to, to a better place. Um, so, so that's the meaning of the ksiv and the kri, right? The ksiv, right? When it says, behold, to us, some lights are with an aleph. What that's saying is that, you know, 
when the person is experiencing suffering, it's not real tsar. It's not real suffering because there's purpose in it, right? There's a, there's a reason why they're going through this and it's actually going to bring this positive benefit to it. But when a person is suffering, you know, Hashem is always with us in the pain. So for Hashem, when Hashem has to go through that suffering with us, for Hashem is one who's having real suffering, right? Lights are to him. It's 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 actual suffering because for Hashem there's there isn't that purpose in it, right? Hashem doesn't have to be rectified or purified in any way. So the real suffering is really for Hashem, not for us, um, when we're going through any sort of pain. So that's sort of like the meaning of the dual, the the, the Kri and the Ksiv is. You know, the, our experience of suffering versus Hashem's experience of suffering um, with us. And then just one last idea from the Roshan or Rebbe. He says, this is really the meaning here. The uh, I, I saw like, I saw this in a, like a safer that quotes the Roshan or Rebbe. It says that at one point he was imprisoned by the czar um, for a few years. And he said while he was in, imprisoned, he said, um, right? The famous Pasuk, right? Even if I'm going to walk in this very dark place, um, I will not fear because you are with me. So he said, he said, what's the meaning of this Pasuk? That when I'm in a dark place, right, this is sort of like a twist on the Pasuk, that when I'm in a dark place, I'm not going to be afraid for myself, right? Because I, you know, for myself, I'm not afraid. The reason why I'm afraid, the reason why I'm concerned is because you are with me, right? You, the Shekhinah, is traveling with me in that dark place. And that's what, that's what bothers me um, about being there. Um, anyway, that's very powerful. Yeah. Very powerful, uh, story, (laughs) right? Sounds almost like, uh, you know, like humorous, but it, it's like, has so much depth, you know, that like connection that uh, like that can, you know, internal interconnection, which Hashem has with the Jewish people. Um, so, so just to bring us back inside the Gemara, we brought the Pesach Bechol Tzaras and Leitzar to prove that at times, even when a word is written with a Lamed Aleph, uh, it, the no, it can mean Lamed Vav. And um, I just want to make a correction before I said the Pesach goes from Tehillim. It's actually from Yeshaya. So don't make, be, don't be confused about that. Okay. So now that we've proved that, um, we we explained why our Yeshua was unsure about the Pasuk regarding Eov, even though the Pasuk regarding Eov, the Ksiv of that Pasuk is Lamed Aleph, um, you know, Mashmahachi, Mashmahachi, you know, you could, we see that, you know, the word Lamed Aleph could sometimes mean Lamed Aleph or sometimes can mean Lamed Vav, and, you know, it's unclear. And it's, you know, un, yeah, it's, it's just unclear. So, Tanya Rimeir, um, we have a bright that. Our mayor says, Namar Yerelikim Be'ev. It describes Eov as a Yerelikim. But Namar Yerelikim Be'avram, right? And it also describes Avraham as a Yerelikim, right? By the Akedah, Hashem says to Avraham, Ata Yedaiti ki Yerelikim Ata. Now I know you're one who fears God. Ma Yerelikim Ha'amar Be'avram Me'ava, just like, um, although Avraham is described as a Yerelikim, he also, we know that Avraham served Hashem out of love, right? Ahi really came out of ear by Abba. So too, though Eov is described as Israeli Kim, uh, he also was one who served Hashem out of love. But Avram moving me now. I mean, how do we know about Avraham in the first place that he served Hashem out of love? Dechsev Zera Avraham Arabat, right? Um, the children of Avraham, the one who loved me, right? My lover. Um, that's how Hashem, you know, you know, the Jewish people are described. 
Right. So this, uh, this, first of all, this pasuk, right? We, when we want to, when we want to prove that Avram served Hashem of love, we use this pasuk specifically. Zera Avram Ayhavai, which there's there's many pasukim which are discuss, um, indicate Maisha's, uh, sorry, Avram's love. Um, so the Frieder Rabbah actually said once in the name of the Mitzvah Rabbah um, that how do we know that a person's love is really like wholehearted and complete? We know that when they pass it on to their children, right? Zera Avram Ayavai, right? The children of Avram, um, the one who loved me. Um, because when you see that their love is passed on to their children, that demonstrates that their love was really, was really you know, sincere and complete. Um, and he says that's like anytime a Jew like demonstrates this, you know, sincere love for Hashem, they're really showing um, that Avram had this, had this type of, this type of love. Um, and then just, just another idea, this whole concept of like, right, we're saying about Avram that his fear um, came from love. What does that mean, fear that comes from love, right? So actually the Rakanti, who's a Kabbalist, right, he, he discusses, right, with, you know, what the Gemara is saying here, right, when, it's, when the Pasuk in by the Akedah describes Avram, it says, Kirei Elikim, right, that Avram was a God-fearing, right? And based on this Gemara, right, we, we're saying love seems to be much greater than, than than fear, right? So why are we praising Avram for having fear as opposed to love? Um, and, and again, the idea here is that there's there's really two types of, of fear, um, fear of Hashem. And when we talk about people being motivated by fear of Hashem, there could be two types of fear. So there's a more superficial type of fear, which is fear of, of being a punishment, right? Like I don't, I don't, I, I'm, I'm, Hashem is more powerful than me and therefore I'm, I'm afraid to do something wrong, right? So that's sort of the more superficial type of fear, which is lower than love, right? But a real, when we talk about Yira, um, a real like deeper uh, type of Yira is a type of Yira that comes as a result of love, right? What does that mean? It means that when a person has such a like deep connection um, and an appreciation for Hashem and like this very deep yearning to be close to Hashem, then what comes as a result of that is this sort of this awe in, in Hashem's presence and this, this sort of um, fear of being separated from Hashem because they have such a deep yearning to want to be close to Hashem. Um, and that's the type of year that, that, that when we're describing the year of our type of year we're referring to, we're referring to this, you know, greater level of year um, which is coming as a result of of our love and closeness to Hashem. So moving along, so we have um, we're gonna we're gonna where we should have is gonna give us another teaching um, regarding the difference between serving from Abba and serving from Yerah. So my ika ben Isaac Abba Lightsmira. What indeed is the difference between serving from fear and serving from love? Right. We spent so much time, you know, so much uh, you know, ink was spilt on trying to figure out where other Eo served Hashem from Abba Yira. What's the difference anyway? So the Tanya Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar Imer, we learned that Bryce said that Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar said, Gazal Ha'isame Abba, Yaisema like some one who serves Hashem out of love is greater than one who serves Hashem out of fear. So that's Halil Elifzar, someone who serves Hashem out of love. Um, sorry, someone who serves Hashem out of fear, his punishment is suspended. Sorry, his his uh, merits are like last for his or like passed on to his descendants for a thousand generations. Um, and that's Halil Elfimzar. Um, and someone who serves Hashem out of love, his merits are passed on to his descendants for two thousand generations. And how do we know that? So, Hachachsev la'alafim la'ayavay l'shemir. So I said, the pasuk says that 
um, you know, the reward will last for generations for those who love me and those who keep my mitzvahs. But as I'm saying, in another place, it says, those who keep the mitzvahs for a thousand generations. So the Shemar, Shemar um, is kind of indicates, you know, not serving Hashem out of love, but just doing, you know, making sure you're the line, doing what you need to do, serving Hashem out of fear. Um, so now the Gemara asked the question, hey, <laughs> we only really quoted half of that Pusik. So if you read the full Pusik, what does the Pusik say? Um, it says, um, And the other Pusik, the other full Pusik says, um, So the, the point is, both Pusikim actually mention both I have him, those who love Hashem, and Shemar Mitzvah. So it seems to be kind of arbitrary, like which Pasuk we're choosing for which one. So, right, so Hasam Nami Ksib, La Ayaba Blue Shemar Mitzvah, right? You know, that one, both that Pasuk also has the word Ayaba and Shemar Mitzvah, La Lavdar. So the so the Gemara says, High Lit Islamically, La High Lit Islamically. Yeah, it's true, but the difference in each Pasuk is the order and the, that the words are placed in. So in the first Pasuk, it says la lafim la ayavai l'shemer v'svaisai, and the word ayavai, even though both words are in the pasuk, the word ayavai is placed right next to the word alafim. And the second pasuk, although the second pasuk also mentions both ayavai and shemer v'svaisai, um, the word shemer, um, the word shemer v'svaisav is placed right next to the word um, alaf, right? Uh, and so that's how we decide, you know, which pasuk is attributed to which quality. Um, so the Gemara is going to bring a story which illustrates the point. So there were two students who were studying with Rava. Um, one, one morning, one of them said to Rava, So he had a dream and he heard a Pasuk being read to him in a dream. And the Pasuk was, you know, Mar of Tufgash or Safanta Levariatha, how much there's there's so much good that Hashem hides away for those who fear it. And the other one said to him, I also had a dream. Um, he had a different Pasuk read to him in a dream, and that all those who trust in you should rejoice, they'll sing and shout out loud, those who love those who love your name shall shout out loud in joy. Um, so Amrla, who he said to them, you're both perfect tzaddikim. But one of you serves Hashem, comes from a place of love, serves Hashem out of love, and one of them serves Hashem out of fear. Sort of indicating that both of these are different, but um, both equally valid paths of a better Hashem. Okay, we've finished the fifth parak of Saita. Um, so our new parak is going to start with an interesting Mishnah. So this Mishnah is going to discuss two basic points. First of all, it's going to discuss how, um, in general, if a man, you know, a man's wife is acting suspiciously, right, there's, uh, you know, meaning he suspects her of committing adultery. Um, there are certain criteria which she needs to follow in order to become an Isisaita. Uh, but let's say, you know, for whatever reason, the husband does not want to put his wife through the Saita process. He doesn't want to give his wife a drink, right? So he warned his wife. His wife, you know, he 
be see that his wife secluded herself, but doesn't want to give her to drink. How much evidence does he need about his wife's behavior in order to divorce her? Right now, in this case, since it's the husband's prerogative, it's the husband's choice uh, not to give his wife to drink the sight of waters, he does have to give her her ksuba, right? Earlier, we said that if the woman turns down the chance to drink the waters, then she gets divorced while forfeiting her ksuba. So in this case, the husband would have to pay the ksuba. Um, but the question is, um, how much evidence does she need, he need to have of the fact that she was secluded? How much evidence is, how much evidence do you need to have in order to, for it to be a mitzvah for him, or, you know, kind of recommended, highly recommended for him to seclude his wife, uh, sorry, not seclude, to divorce his wife. I'll be with Exuba. Then we're going to move on. How much evidence does a, does one need that a woman has actually committed adultery uh, and that a woman, you know, so meaning following Kino and Sira, how much evidence do we need that the woman has actually committed adultery in order to disqualify her from drinking the waters, right? If we know for sure that a woman has committed adultery, um, she does not drink. So the question is, how sure do you have to be? Do you need two witnesses? Do you just need a rumor, right? So we're going to discuss that in the Mishnah as well. Um, okay, so we start off the Mitzvah. So Misha Kina Leishtai, Vinistra. So somebody who warned his wife, right, not to seclude herself with another man, uh, Vinistra. And she, you know, he, she, it's very probable that she secluded herself, but you don't know for sure, right? So how sure do you have to be that she secluded herself? So the first opinion in their Mishnah is very extreme. So Rabbi Lazar believes even if he heard from a bird flying in the sky, like a little birdie told him that his wife was secluded, it's a mitzvah for him to divorce his wife, although he does have to give her her ksuba, because we don't know for sure. Um, she's not a saita. Um, you, he should divorce her. So what does this mean, a talking bird? So Rashi says it means that it's a invalid witness. So even people who normally are not kosher to be a witness, to testify in court. So for example, a woman, someone who's a minor, but a majority. Um, so all of those, these uh, types of people, even though normally they wouldn't be valid witnesses, in this case, they are. And even if he hears from such a source, um, that is enough to make the man required to divorce his wife. Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Yeshua says, that um, that's not enough. It has to be so um, so that the rumors that that she has secluded herself has to be so widespread that the women who weave by the moonlight have to be talking to her. So at that point, right? If it's like so, you know, people are so sure that she's committed adultery that everyone's talking about it. At that point, uh, a man should divorce his wife. Again, he should give her her ksuba because you don't know anything for sure. She's not technically a saita. But um, at that point, uh, a man should divorce his wife. Uh, so now what we're going to go on to say is we're going to move on to the second case, right? Um, how do we know? Let's say we know for sure that she's been warned and she's been secluded. How do we know? Um, and and we know at that point if we have any... Um, indication that she has actually committed adultery for sure she doesn't drink so how sure do you have to be um so you know from earlier in the masafta that it doesn't need to be two witnesses even a single witness uh works um so we're going to discuss this in more detail so amar 
student it's maze. Let's just say that, right? Even if there was one witness that said, I saw that she committed adultery, she wouldn't drink. Not only that, a few avid, a few shifra, even a servant or a maid servant, hurry, able that them man in, off la paisa mixuba. These um, types of witnesses are even believed to disqualify her from getting her ksuba, right? Um, so, yeah, so the, they're only, so again, just because I didn't mention this before, if she actually commits adultery, she forfeits her ksuba because now we, again, you know, for sure she is at fault and she has committed adultery, thus terminating the marriage. Now, there are five people who are called Hamatius and Nashim Sinai Suisdu. There are five women who are presumed to have some sort of like enmity or like kind of tension in their relationship. And therefore, there are five women who, if they testify about a woman that she has committed adultery, they are not believed for the purposes of disqualifying her from her ksuba because we suspect there are like some ulterior motives involved. So who are these five women? Hamaisa, her mother-in-law, Bas Hamaisa, um, her, her mother's, her mother-in-law's daughter, Sarasa, her co-wife, right? If, if in those days, um, they was permitted to have more than one wife. So she, her, her husband's other wife, the Avimsa. Um, so her, let's say her husband has a brother who is married um, and her, you know, brother-in-law's wife could be someday eligible to be, do Yibam with her husband. And then which means that someday it could be that that woman would be her co-wife. So it's like a, it's also someone who uh, there might be um, enmity between the two of them, who bought Phila and also her stepdaughter. So all of these five women, Hare Elu Namanais, they are permitted. We believe them if they say she committed adultery. Belayla Paisla Miksubasa. She does not. They do not disqualify her from getting her ksuba because we suspect again they have ulterior motives. Ellis like Tisha, but um, she. They we do believe them in that she does not drink, right? Um. So now the Gemara is going to explain why why is it that we don't we only need one witness uh, for this stage of the process, whereas in other stages we need two. So Shachaya Badin, it would make sense. Uh, to make the following kavachimer, umam edes rishayna sheinai sarja iser ailam enemis kayemes pachas rishayim. Just like in the first edes, and the edes was regarding her, her secluding herself, right? Um, and if we know that a woman secludes herself, that does not necessarily um, make a woman forbidden to her husband forever. But enemis kayemes pachas rishayim. Still, we require two witnesses uh, to to um, render the woman. Um, this latter testimony, meaning testimony that she's committed adultery, which if we ascertain she's committed adultery, renders her um, forbidden to her husband forever. Wouldn't it make sense that this, you know, that's much more severe uh, matter. So it makes sense that you for sure need two witnesses. So Talmud Limar. Um, we don't say that because of the following Pasuk, the age ain't ba, right? The Pasuk says, um, we discussed this at length at the beginning of the Masakta. The Pasuk says, um, the Nalama ain't Isha, the Nistra, the Hinitma, the age ain't ba, right? She is secluded, she becomes defiled, and there is no age. Kol edis shishba kavachimer, le edis harishaina. Right, so which means that any, even though this edith has a kavachomer, right, meaning even though there's a kavachomer with the um, with the first edith, meaning the edith of Stira, it doesn't matter because this pasuk indicates that only one 
that you don't need two witnesses. So now the question is, perhaps you could make a call home or the other way. Okay, so now we're going to take it for granted because of this possibility, but we're going to take it for granted. You only need one witness for, um, for to conclude that a woman has complete cut committed adultery so if for this latter testimony the woman's committed adultery um which rendered this one forbidden forever you only it's fine it's valid if you only have one witness how much more so the earlier testimony that this woman has been secluded you should only also only need one witness so why is it that we require two so tom and limer we have a pusik for that as well kimata ba ervas davar um it says in the context of you know, criminal, like this, the, the requirements to punish for a crime. It says, um, you have to have, sorry, I'd correct that. is in the context of when a man divorces his wife. And it says that the man divorces his wife because he found something unseemly. He found that she was engaged in promiscuous behavior. It says that uh, when Punishing someone, you should only punish someone if you have two witnesses. Then the matter, the dever, should be um, upheld. So you see, have exerishaba. The same word is used in the context of promiscuous behavior and in the context of needing two witnesses. So malahalan alpishnaim, just like over there in general, in you know, in in the legal system, we need two witnesses afkan alpishnaim. So too, in this matter of ervas dever in the area of saita, we need two witnesses um okay so now we're going to go into more cases more complex cases um with regard to the testimony that a woman has committed adultery so aid imernismes if one witness says this woman has committed adultery the aid imernismes and another witness says she has not committed adultery if a woman meaning an invalid or any other invalid witness says um this woman has committed adultery the isha imeris linesmes and another woman has committed says that she has not committed adultery, she would drink. So even though there's one witness which says she's committed adultery, since another one witness conflicts that testimony, they kind of cancel each other out, and and now we're back to square one, and she drinks. Um, If one says she committed adultery and two says she did not, um, she would drink. Right. So again, here we're following. It seems we're following the majority, right? Um, the I'm related to If two says that she committed adultery, and one says she's not committed adultery, So again, we seem to be following the majority. Two say she's um, two say she's guilty. One says she's innocent. So we go with the majority and say she's probably guilty, and we don't have her drink the waters. Okay, now we're going to move on to the Gemara. So what the Gemara is going to do is going to analyze um, the the reasoning, the discussion we had earlier regarding why we require two witnesses for Stira. Now, those who are with us from the beginning might have some recollection of what we discussed all the way in the beginning of the Gemara. And we talked about this very issue. We discussed at length this very issue, why we need two witnesses for Stira. And in that, in the, in that um, place, in that sugya, we said that the, we gave a different reason than that was given in the Mishnah. We said the reason why we don't 
you require two witnesses. For Sarah is because it says the aid ain't but we don't require two witnesses for this matter, for the matter of Tuma, whether she committed adultery. But we do require to that indicates we do require two witnesses for a matter of Sarah. So in the words of the Gemara, ba below Bastira, right? We need one witness. We were, we were okay with one witness here, but not for Sira. That's different than what the Mishnah said. The Mishnah said the way we know you need two witnesses for Sira is because of Shava with Kimatsava Ervas Davar and Alpishnaim Edim Yakum Davar, right? So what's going on over there? So the Gemara asks, Hi Talmud Lamar, Kimatsava Ervas Davar. So why is the why is the Mishnah bringing this, you know, diak and like limit from the pasuk of kimatzava erbastavar? Um, Talmud Lamar ba ba ba. It should have brought an explanation from the pasuk of ba eden ba ba v'le bikinoi ba v'le b'sirah. We explain over there. Um, ba we we don't need we were okay with one and it's here with whether she committed adultery, but not with kinoi and not with stira. Um, you buy it, that's what it should have said. So the Gemara said, yeah, you're right. That's what the Mishnah really meant to say. And so we're going to have to say the Mishnah is incomplete. And there are really some like missing words that we have to insert inside this Mishnah. Um, so this is what the Mishnah really meant to say. Talmud Laimar, ba, 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 The reason why we need two witnesses for Sira is because of this Pasuk ba, which indicates for it and not for Kinoi and for it and for not for Stira. But we have another question. What about Tuma Ba'alma? What if we just hear that a woman has committed adultery without a, the prior steps of Kinoi and Stira? What do you do that? Right, but like Kinoi, but like Stira, how do we know How do we know that in that case, if you just have this one person who says, oh, you know, this woman cheated on her husband, how do we know in that case, um, we don't believe the one witness? So Nemar so that's why we need to lean with Nemar Khan Dabar, Holland Dabar. We we see here in the context of promiscuous behavior, the word Dabar, and over there in the context of needing two witnesses, the word Dabar. Malahalan Bishne Adim, just like over there, you need to Adim. Also here, um, in general, when ascertaining whether a woman commits adultery, you need to Adim. Uh, now the Gemara is going to analyze um, the cases at the end of the Mishnah. Um, where we had conflicting testimonies, right? So we had one witness saying one thing or one witness saying the other, two witnesses saying one thing and two witnesses saying the other. Uh, just an important background halacha that will just be important context for um, the following discussion. So, so in general, in the laws of testimony, if you have two witnesses that walk into court and they say, let's say, oh, you know, I witnessed a murder. We, the two of us, witnessed a murder last week on Monday, right? And the judges cross-examine the witnesses. Everything looks great. It's all good. And then two other witnesses, after the judges kind of like, you know, confirm their testimony, two other witnesses come in and say, oh no, what are you talking about? He never killed that person, right? That person was never killed. Uh, you know, we, we, we like saw that person, you know, in a different place on Monday. That person could have never murdered right so in that case um the we believe the first set of witnesses right that's what's called hachasha we have conflicting testimony so in that case the witnesses don't counsel each other out even if like a hundred witnesses come the next day and conflict with the first testimony it doesn't matter we accept the first testimony right so that's like important background 
for what we say here. So what we said in the Gemara was something different. We said if one witness says mitzvah and another witness says why mitzvah, they do cancel each other out, right? So that's in contrast with the halakha when you have two witnesses, where once one witness is confirmed, you know, it doesn't matter how many other witnesses come along, we uphold the original testimony. So taima, so it appears the reason for the halakha, uh, right? The reason why we have the woman drink is because there's conflicting testimony. So that implies that if um, there was no conflicting testimony, the one witness will be believed. So first, the Gemara wants to know, how do we know in the first place that one witness is believed? Before we get into the complicated discussions about conflicting testimony, like, how do we even know one witness is believed in the first place? So the Tana Rabbana and our sages have taught the aid ain ba, right? There's no witness uh, to her crime. Bishnaim hakasav medaber. So even though the word aid is singular, so you know you might read that pasuk and there's no witness at all. Um, the the Bryson informs us that the word aid here is plural, like the word fish in English can mean singular or plural. The word aid here too uh, is plural. So the Eidain Ba means there aren't a pair of witnesses, but there is one witness. Um, so the Bryce asks, wait, are you, why are you saying it's two? In Alabaca, maybe the Pasuk just means one. Aid means, generally does mean singular. So how do we know? Um, right? So we have a Pasuk which tells us one witness, a single witness should not, be able to testify against a man. So like why do you need the word aid and you could have just said the word aid and then I would already know aid is singular. So aid aid means one aid, right? So right so this so what is it teaching us? So this Achad creates a precedent. So that means this Pasuk is telling you that in general, the word aid means two, except that the Pasuk specifically says Achad, one. Right? And that's why that Pasuk had to specifically say aid Achad. Um, Right, so again, so once we have aid, meaning plural, there aren't two aidim, but there is one. And then if you read the, if you read through the Pasuk, right, it says the aidain ba, the heel and especia, right, she was not forced. So the heel and especia, she wasn't forced, a surah, that means that she is uh, forbidden to her husband, right, she's committed adultery. Um, okay, so the Kamen's be right, the aid at Mahiman. So now that we established that uh, by Torah law, one witness is believed. So Edoch, on the other hand, we have another question. How can another witness contradict the first witness? Didn't Ula say, Right? Um, it's, Ula said that whenever the Torah believes one witness, that witness is given the strength of two witnesses. Um, right. So if you have this first witness, this witness now becomes like two witnesses. And now you can't have this other witness come along and contradict the words of those two people. Right. That that doesn't work. Uh, as we explained before. So Allah Amar Ula. So Ula said 
really, you should really correct the Mishnah. And instead of saying, it should say, right? That if one witness says she's impure and the second set says she wasn't, she would not drink because we believe the first witness. So Rabbi Yitzchak did the same thing. He also amended the Mishnah and he said it should really say But not everyone agrees with this. Rabbi um, Chia says, nope, you don't have to change the Mishnah. The Mishnah is perfectly fine. Um, and the halacha is she should drink. So how does he respond to Ula's question? It's a really great question. How why can the how can the second witness contradict the first? So like Hashis, it's no problem. Here, when we say one witness uh, can contradict the other, it's when they come simultaneously together, right? So Rashi says it means like one witness gives their testimony and like within like three seconds, another witness barges through the door and says, no, 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 no. She didn't, you know, um, she didn't commit adultery, right? So in that case, um, that's when the ruling of the Mishnah applies um, and that she she does drink the waters. We don't believe the first witness. Uh, but the statement that, um, you know, the first witness is given the, power of two witnesses and that you know we always uphold the testimony of the first witness that is only when they come one after another so if the first witness comes to court and he's given you know the chance we stab we verify his testimony then no one else can come and contradict it um so but this sounds like a great answer but it's going to end up being problematic Tznan, if you read a little later in the Mishnah, Tznan, Eid Echad Eimer Nitzmeis, Vishnaim Eimer Nitzmeis, Haisa Shaisa. So it says that if one witness says she committed adultery and two witnesses says she didn't commit adultery, she would drink. Right now, the implication of that um, is that, you know, there has to be two that say she wasn't guilty. The implication is that if it was one and one, if it was just one person who said she wasn't she didn't commit adultery, she wouldn't drink. Great TF said Rabbi This seems to directly contradict what Rabbi said. So our Rabbi would answer you, according to your reasoning of like inferring the implication of each clause in the Mishnah, um, you're going to end up with an issue. Safe at the end of the Mishnah says, that if two people say she committed adultery and one said she does not commit adultery, she wouldn't drink. The implication of that, if it was just one and one, she would drink. Right? So obviously, we have to find another way of interpreting the Mishnah. Otherwise, you know, no matter what thought you give, you're going to end up with inconsistencies. So, it must be this entire Mishnah isn't just talking about, it's talking about witnesses which are disqualified from giving testimony, right? So that would be, again, a woman is generally possible to us, a minor is generally possible to us, an or a shifcha, or possible so anyone in that category. So 
Rabbi Nechemia, and this Mishnah is in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Nechemia. Datani Rabbi Nechemia Eimer. We have a bright that Rabbi Nechemia says, Any place, any area in which the Torah believes one witness, Halak Right. In the implication of one witness, it could mean either one witness or an invalid witness. Right. So there are areas of halakha. Uh, where one witness is believed. And in all those cases, you just go according to the majority. As we said before, with two witnesses, it's not necessarily the majority. Once you have two witnesses who are verified, you could even have 100 other witnesses. And technically, the other 100 witnesses are the majority, but you still follow the first two. But with or you kind of follow the more intuitive route that you just go according to the majority. And also, if there are two women who are testifying against one man, it's equivalent to as if there were two men uh, testifying against one man. Right. And so the two women override that one man, even though women are generally postulators. Um, and so therefore, that's what the mission is telling you. The mission, the mission is not trying to. Um, the, the the clause of the Mishnah, which says, to, you know, if two people say she's ta- um, Tame and one person says she's not Tame, isn't trying to imply anything about Chad and Chad, about one and one. It's trying to teach you an entirely new halacha, that um, that when we're talking about a case of Eid Achad or Apostle Eidas, you just go according to the majority of opinions. Amri, there are those who say the principle of uh, Rabbi is actually a little bit different. And the principle is like this, but the application of the principle is exactly the same. Um, it just, the principle is a little bit different and the principle is as follows. That in truth, um, if there's one, if one witness comes who's kosher, a kosher witness, so a kosher, a man who is kosher to testify, um, testifies, once a kosher witness testifies, even if a hundred other women or other invalid witnesses testify, um, they all those hundred women are considered like one witness, um, and they don't override his testimony. Um, so, but in our Mishnah, what are we dealing with? Like it's a case where the first witness was a woman, and the other two witnesses were also women. So in that case, you know what we said originally still applies that we follow. Um, the majority of opinions. Um, so now what the Gemara is going to do is it's going to fit this principle uh, into the words of Rabbi Nechemia. So the teacher of Rabbi Nechemia, and you, so according to this latter explanation, you have to kind of like tweak the words of Rabbi Nechemia a little bit. This is what Rabbi Nechemia is saying. Right. Whenever the Torah believes one witness, you go according to the majority of opinions and that two women with one woman against one woman is equivalent to two men against one man. But if there are two women testifying against one man, one kosher witness, it's like half and half. And the two women do not override um, the other testimony. Now, the Gemara asks, okay, great. This is a great explanation of the Mishnah, but I just got one question. Um, if all the Mishnah wanted to teach me was that um, when you are when you have two um, 
apostle witness when the apostle witness testifying, apostle witnesses testifying, you go according to the majority opinion. Why did the Mishnah give two examples, right? It gave the example of one witness saying she's Tame and two saying she's innocent, and the reverse also, one that she's innocent and two that she's Tame. The Mishnah could have just given one of those examples, and one of those examples would have been enough to teach me that halacha. So the Gemara says, uh, right, so Bitarte, Bapsule Edas Lemali. Why do I need two examples in the Mishnah teaching me this halacha about Psule Edas? So Ma'adutema, it's there because you if you only had one example, you might have said, Ki is Linan Right? You might have thought, let's say would have just given you the example uh, that one witness says she is um one witness says that she's that she's Tahar and two witnesses says that she's Tame, right? So in that case, we say we go according to the majority view when they say she's guilty, right? So that's kind of like a chumra. Um, but what if we? What about the other case? In that case, we say that you know if there's two witnesses that say that she's innocent and one witness says that she's guilty, we say she's innocent. That's a kula. So you might have thought that we only follow this rule. Um, that we follow the majority view in a case of chumra and not in a case where it's you know. It leads to stringency, but not in a case where it leads to leniency. So that's why it listed both examples. Kamash Balena is what the Mishnah is teaching us. Hadranalach Mishakine, we've finished the sixth parak of Saita. Okay, looking forward to starting parak Shavi with you tomorrow.